The sacred writings of the Baha'i Faith teach that music is a ladder for the soul. My name is Jack Gordon, host of Interfaith-ish, and on this ongoing series of conversations that I'm calling Soul Ladder Music, I invite you to climb with me as we hear songs and stories from a diverse array of musicians who connect sound and spirit. My guest this week is Chief Zion Atunde Ajua, formerly known as Christian Scott. A six-time Grammy nominee and nephew of jazz legend Donald Harrison Jr., Ajua is celebrated primarily for his phenomenal trumpet playing. But Ajua's most recent album, Bark Out Thunder, Roar Out Lightning, doesn't even feature the horn. Instead, it begins with an instrument of the musician's own design, Ajua's bow, and instead puts the focus on a mix of rhythms from the African diaspora, including the Afro-Indigenous community of New Orleans, where Ajua was recently named Chief of His Nation. This blending and embracing of traditions and cultures is emblematic of Ajua's philosophy of what he refers to as stretch music, the term he prefers to jazz. I've loved Chief Ajua's music since the first notes I heard him play over a decade ago, and I'm always excited by the directions he's moving in, how he unabashedly brings his full self to each of his projects, and welcomes us to learn and experience the ride along with him. So it is with pleasure that I introduce what's certainly been a highlight of this series, my conversation with Chief Ajua. Working through our young in the winds of war, yeah. 
Sons of Canaan teach when thunder boys make phone ball and one mother First off, congratulations on the release of your new album, Bark Out Thunder, Roar Out Lightning. I appreciate it. Thank you. I had a listen and really love all the different directions that you're going with it. And I'm just really excited to be able to dive into it a little bit with you and, and talk a little bit about, you know, what inspired it and, you know, some of the messaging that you're you're coming through and bringing through your music and, and this record in particular. Oh, man, I appreciate you taking the moment to listen. So you're about to do a set of shows here at the, the Kennedy Center in D.C. Uh, do you have a favorite hall that you like playing in when you're when you're rolling through D.C.? Uh, no, not a not a favorite hall. Um, but, you know, the, generally when we are. You know, it used to be years ago, it was like the KC Jazz Club and it's moved a bit, you know, from hall to hall. And I played, I think, all of the, the halls that are there. But um Really, you know, for me, I mean, I play in a phone booth, man. You know, <laughs> the point is, is you know, can 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 we can we get the sound across to the people or not? You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. so it's it's really more the people than just the institution or the space. You know what I mean? I I think you'll be able to bring it to an appreciative audience. That's for sure. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> is performance a real spiritual experience for you? Is it like a prayer experience for you? Yeah, you know, it's a sacred experience and a sacred thing to share. Um, you know, we musicians have the ability to to um to sort of cast positivity into a, a space or to cast other kinds of energies, you know. Yeah. And yeah. for me, you know, what I love about this music and where its efficacy and power lies is its um ability to help uh practitioners and listeners expand. You know, it's 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 uh it's a music that is always growing and always incorporating other things and and like having the ability to contribute something that not only helps us grow but has the ability to foster that kind of growth in the community is not something that I don't think anyone should take lightly. Yeah. Um, so it is a ritual space. It is um yeah, I mean it is it's sort of it's a spiritual experience as well, right? Because all of the spirits hopefully are growing, you know. Yes, yes. You know, so to be able to create music that that um, creates that type of energy is one thing, but for it to also be palpable and for people to be able to walk away knowing they've had it is another level. So so mm -hmm. to me, that's always um, sort of the focal point of the concerts is to make sure that people lift, leave uh, sort of a lighter than they arrived and um, hopefully vibrating at a, another a higher kind of frequency by the time that set is over. Yeah, and it sounds like a lot of the music that you're creating today is is really to help remind people of that connection with their forebearers, right? And see those connections that are happening. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, Big Chief Donald Harrison, um, and you know, of course, your 2019 album was called Ancestral Recall. And I'm I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about what that phrase means to you and how your your music is an act of ancestral recall. Well, yeah, I mean, there are so many different pillars to that that thread, um, mm. but I would say for the original recording, ancestral recall, the re the way it was named was, I was building all of this music and 
playing a bunch of the different layers on Akan drums, Awey drums, Dooms, you know, th- these different cultures of West African drums, right. uh, different cultures of drumming that come out of like Kondoble traditions and Santeria traditions, these kinds of things. And uh, as I was building all of this music and then I started to send the music around uh, to master level um, Jimbe Fola and different practitioners, people that came come out of some of those traditions. And um, what was crazy to me was, you know, I was just creating visions and things that I was hearing, but everyone that I was sending to that comes directly from those cultures would say, hey, man, it's like, yeah, I didn't know that you knew Casa Soro. Or I didn't know that you knew Sunu Agui. And I would say in those moments, I didn't know I knew it either. Wow. <laughs> it was like it was literally the record was like ancestral recall incarnate because I hadn't. Mm. I grew up obviously in a maroon system and in the chiefdom system in Louisiana. My grandfather, my uncle, and obviously now I'm chief. But but we have our own system of uh, expression. Expressing, uh, we kind of have our own uh, skeleton keys to these expressions, rhythmically uh, yeah. um, that are related to those rhythms, but that are not the same as those rhythms. So. You know, I was I would get phone calls from other musicians that would say, man, not only are you playing the rhythm, but you're playing this rhythm on this drum and that's the drum that plays that. And you're playing this particular pattern on the, the key D and that's the drum that plays that. So it, it, it wasn't just that the rhythms were being approximated or recalled on a general level. It was the degree of specificity that existed in the recalling that was also kind of staggering to us as a group. For that reason, you know, I, I decided to to label the record with that energy because it was technically what was actually happening in that space. Whereas that is kind of a uh, a different kind of um, de- point of departure than Bark Out Thunder, Roar Out Lightning, because the the sort of linear ancestral recall that exists in that record are, are lived in experiences, right? Like I remember how what it sounded like when our trail chief would sing the traditional songs. I remember what it sounded like when my papa would play the tambourine. I, I know his rhythm versus with how Donald approached it. I could tell the difference between what the downtown cohorts are doing versus the northern tribes. All of those things are lived in experiential things versus what happened with the preceding ancestral recall. So 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 they they are both types of ancestral recall, but one uh, is uh, is marked by a knowing versus versus a uh, sort of um, uh, metaphysical kind of uh, energetic thing repeating. Remember his father who led the children there? Uncle Junior Junior with the horn in hand. Tell you a story that morning like no other can.
so on the new album, it sounds like it's really an homage to that to that culture, the different cultures that you're you're pulling in, that you're like you said that you've lived in, that you've remembered, that you've experienced. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about some of the culture that that people who like myself aren't from Louisiana aren't okay. necessarily part of that culture, um, and and how that you know influenced uh, mm-hmm. some of what you were thinking on this record. Oh yeah, no problem. So. I'm born into chieftain systems or maroon systems in New Orleans, Louisiana, um, which are uh, groups that have uh, a very wide array of sort of uh, inception and and foundational stories, Mm. uh, but that a lot of them have collective uh, sort of a, a collective expression. Uh, that happens during the carnival season and also St. Joseph's Night. Uh, right. The tribal banners will uh, don their particular ceremonial regalia and meet the other nations. Uh, some people pejoratively and belittlingly refer to this group as Mardi Gras Indian or Black Indian. Mm-hmm. These are uh, terms that um, I do not accept. Uh, my family has sort of been on the, at the front lines of also clarifying and complicating the sort of nomenclature that exists around the expressions. Hmm. Uh, Maroon nations, uh, you can also refer to them as Afro-Indigenous nations. Uh, But when we say Black masking Indian or Mardi Gras Indian, it creates a a sort of a projection that um, people that are linearly read as African descent don't have a relationship to Indigenousness, which is ridiculous. Right, right. so, so I'm born into that system, into that system, uh, in one of the first houses of the system. So my grandfather was the only man to lead four nations in our tradition. Uh, my uncle Donald, obviously the NEA jazz master and and beyond uh, genius and icon in our music, um, is also uh, our larger nation's high chief. Uh, mm. He. Is the Congo Square Nation, which Congo Square is kind of ground zero for African descent musical expression in the Americas, if you will, because this is one of the only spaces where African descent people were allowed to maintain their drums and cultural expressions. Mm. It also was a space of containment, if we're being honest about the fuller history of that particular space, because some of the largest insurrections and rebellions in American history, actually the largest one in American history, the German Coast Rebellion, happened right outside of New Orleans because the enslaved Africans were playing on the riverbanks and, and communicating. Communicating. Mm. Right. So they forced the expression into Congo Square where it could be surveilled, right? Mm. Wow. Um, but so these these cultures, some of the cultures start as early as the 17 teens. Um, and uh, there are about 40 nations that make up the larger nation. The tribe that I lead is referred to as Shotokan. Um, and it has sort of a each nation has different priorities and different sort of histories. But our nation is really more tethered to maintenance of the skeleton keys of the expressions and also as a sort of a very specific kind of um, a uh, misnomer for our group and collective is that we do not mask uh, or mask, uh, which is which is a, a, a sort of part of the expression that deals with dressing out in the ceremonial regalia in the different nations meeting each other. But historically, when because a lot of these uh, sort of uh, Afro-Indigenous groups uh, lived in spaces where the code noir, the black codes, and these sort of things were prevalent. They didn't outwardly say, uh, point directly to their Africanity, because in certain eras that could mean, Mm. right? Right, So so, so this is why you have tribal nations uh, that in terms of the, the, how most people relate to the culture, 
you know, if they're referring to them as Mardi Gras Indians, they will have names such as uh, the Creole Wild West or the Seventh Ward Hunters versus them saying that, you know, you it's very rare historically that you would have a chieftain say that he's a he's a maybe 16th generation descendant of an Oba or an Asante Hena that made their way through that terrible transatlantic experience to New Orleans. They're not going to say that they're the Akana Ashanti. They'll say they're Creole. <laughs> wow. wow. This district, a neighborhood. Whereas Shotokan is, um, has a different intention and a different energy and we don't mask. So this is the, the, the energy wrapped around it is really more about um, being very clear at the fact that like your most African version of yourself and your most indigenous version of yourself are beautiful and are valid and should be referenced no matter how anyone else feels about it, you know? Yeah. So, so our particular way of expressing is rooted in the, the older way. That's a, that's a beautiful uh, way of claiming you know, the unity that exists between those identities. I think that's a, that's an inspiring example to set, you know, to so many people, so many young people in particular that are coming into that discovery of their of their identities and how a lot of these stories need to be uncovered. So I really appreciate the example that you're setting. We, we fall into the sort of colonial um, sort of tendency to try and frame things in ways that that if we are honest about those larger histories are problematic, you know, mm. like framing things based on like antiquated blood quantum laws, American right. blood quantum laws, and like uh, sort of uh, 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 census sort of uh, uh, descriptors of entire peoples that were built by you know people like William Plecker and like eugenicists built the first census. These weren't people that were interested in being fair. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. So, yeah. so it's important to interrogate those histories and also complicate those histories by being mo the most honest about the human experience, which is a mixed one, you know? Yeah. Like I, when, we're, when I'm teaching these things and I have younger students and they refer to themselves as mixed race and these sort of things, I always take a moment to stop them to be clear about the fact that the human family is only one race. We may have mm. different ethnic and cultural backgrounds, but but the but creating the distinction at the baseline of our sort of mitochondrial and genetic information is is kind of problematic because we have the ability to discern the truth in this moment. So mm -hmm. so to build those composites uh, are are very important to make sure that those singular narratives don't live on in the way that they have because they're problematic and they cause dissension and division amongst people that are actually the same people, right? Yeah. Um, and also, you know, you, you mentioned the unity. Shotokan actually means the unity. So you're How about that? Spot, spot, spot on because this is sort of the idea, you know. One of the things that I will say culturally differentiates most of the the uh, the Black tribes and the, the, the chieftain's energy on the processional Carnival Day in St. Joseph's Night is that everyone is eligible to show up. They don't draw lines and say you don't get to play because your your blood quantum is only this much or that is one of the few spaces that we have in our larger cultural expression in New Orleans where everyone is eligible. And unifying people through those shared histories, even though some of those histories are not so positive, like, look, if we're being honest about it, we know the Cold Noir happened. We know the Dawes Act happened. We knew uh, that uh, many deeply melanated uh, Aboriginal Americans that most people would linearly read as an African American, you know, the, America has a very uh, large uh, area that's pretty close to the equator. So most indigenous people in this country historically don't look like a Mohican, which is which is a tribe that was made up by a European making a novel. It's not a real group of people. Mm -hmm. 
right? Um, but when we think of what a in uh, for, forgive the pejorative term, but an Indian looks like, we have very linear ideas of what, of what that is. So it it to to us, it's very important to be clear about the the fact that like the um, African or black for letter for lack of a better way of describing those peoples, their relationship to indigenousness is. Uh, a much larger contribution than they're generally allowed because of the black codes and those people being cast out of those spaces because those the five civilized tribes had to recodify their tribal governments based on American rule versus the old rules and part of part of the byproduct of that was them casting out deeply melanated natives into cities like New Orleans, Louisiana, and Houston, Texas, and Mobile, Alabama, and folks like William Plecker recategorizing them in census as being colored. And that eventually became Negro, right? So, so those those histories are are complicated. You know, a lot of those uh, folks that also have those indigenous uh, backgrounds from some of those tribe those tribes that endured the horrific Trail of Tears, they were also moving with those groups as enslaved persons. So, there's those are things that we don't talk about so much, but those histories have to be acknowledged in order for us to be able to move forward in the best way possible. you're breaking this down at like multiple doctorate levels of, of uh, clear research that you you know and and just the deep level of scholarship that you're bringing to the lived experience that you have as well i think that's that's such a beautiful thing and my mom you have to, you have to blame my mom <laughs> you know she's, she's serious about history so so that's yeah. her and and you know and i think that this the importance of the it sounds like creating like a a new world system a new way of viewing the world that draws from specific heritage but also has room as you're saying to embrace everyone. uh everyone yeah. and i've heard i've heard that you said um that you don't like the the term jazz and prefer the term that you've coined stretch music 
So it sounds like that that principle also applies to then the musicality that you're you're bringing to to these traditions. All of it, to my name, you know, it, it's all it's all related. You know, mm. we, um, you know, we, you and I are born into a time period and a generation where people are should be reevaluating the utility a lot of a lot of a lot of what we feel and think about uh, different groups and also the kinds of labels that have been levied and superimposed onto groups without them having a say, you mm. know. Um, and, you know, and, it, and it's, I think it's what you point to, you know, very, very, um, sensitive and receptive to these things that we're intimate, I'm intimating, but it's like what you're pointing to, um, is, is a very important thing to, to deal with in this moment, which is that like, you know, it's, we don't have to accept things as they are, and we do have the opportunity to start anew. You know, when people talk about Maroons, generally they, that the definition is like self-liberated Africans that drew a line in the sand and said, we're not going to take it, that kind of thing. But if you look closely at those communities, they're mixed. More right. often than not, if you look at, you know, the folks in the they gullet, had to go somewhere <laughs> and there are people there. <laughs> It wasn't just and it wasn't just right. uh, people that we would linearly read as black people that were fed up with this society. Right. right. You had people that descended from European indentured servants who certainly weren't having it. You had First Nations people who certainly weren't having it. And if you if you you know look at the histories of maroonage through everywhere from the Virginias all the way down to the Florida panhandle, those groups are mixed. Right. So it, it's what I love about the diff, that particular differentiation that is kind of a byproduct from my excavating a lot of these histories is that it showed that actually these people were intentional about respecting people's full humanity, no matter what they look like. So so this is part of the reason we continue to use that term maroon, because to me, really, what it means is most human, a person that's willing to see and recognize people's humanity first, no matter what culture, the other preferences they have, they see them as human beings first. And, and to me, this is the kind of example that I would like to leave for my children when they get here. You know, yeah. as a person that can see a man as a man and not draw a line in the sand and think he knows something about him because he's looking, you know? Mm. Talk a little bit, if you would, about that, that how that oneness principle uh, comes into play in the idea of stretch music? Well, the, the idea is to try and figure out a way to create a language and a vernacular, sort of a composite that references as many musical lineages and histories and vernaculars as, as possible, right? So what we're looking to do is to unify as many people uh, in one voice uh, versus carving them up and defining them, you know, and, and, you know, carving them up based on definition, right? Okay. So in other words, if I'm a person that um, can take something from an Indian raga, something that comes from the rhythms of the Samaka and French Guyana, and something that comes from traditional Korean music and mix it with the fervor of the Delta blues, then what am I saying about the people? I'm saying that they're stronger together, that they belong together, right? Mm -hmm. We understand that these traditions have... Uh, pillars and 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 very specific um, uh, modes of operating that identify and define them. Uh, the point is never to take away from those things, but I think it is also as a 21st century world citizen. I think it's also important to try and figure out a way to allow people that come from different cultural, uh, cultural linguistic, cultural ethnic sort of backgrounds to be able to be in one space music and to to know that no matter what it is that they express that they are valid in that space so yeah. so so that oneness and sort of unifying agent is definitely the major through line in stretch music 
I've heard you you say that when you talk about, for example, African diaspora, you're you're including the continent in in that. You're not just talking about outside the continent, because of course yeah. there is all this. To your point before, intermixing trade, communication, conversation that happens within the continent. Do you get to travel a lot? Have you been able to travel a lot through Africa? Yeah, I mean, you know, the first time I went to Africa, I want to say maybe 13, 12 or 13 years old. Mm. Um, And, you know, but what I will say is part of the reason that I market as also diaspora is because the most, the largest amount of genetic diversity and cultural diversity that exists in the world is in Africa. (laughs) And they're constantly moving. You know what I'm saying? So it's like all of the spaces are also spaces that people are returning to or new to. So it's... um, it, it has all of the things. And so to me, I think, um, uh, you know, when, when people obviously linearly speak to, to diaspora, they're only speaking about the spaces outside of home. But also you have a lot of people, it's like I can think of maybe 30 people in my life alone that have, have left these spaces and went back to Africa, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, so it's, I think um, it should be included in that for sure, you know? Where are some of your favorite places that that you return to again and again? Definitely, I, I really enjoy being in South Africa, um, mainly because it's not uh, culturally there. They are don't have the same connection to the uh, sort of uh, transatlantic experience, and okay. so they uh, sort on a lot of levels they view themselves as being different from us. And um, to be able to go there and to kind of compare notes and to commune and have um, uh, amorous relationships with folks that are related, but also in a lot of ways not related, has always been really cool to me because it's a it's a learning thing, right? So it's like even in terms of the rhythms and what's going on musically is a little bit different than the way that folks that may come from Benin or or Senegal or Mali, which we know are linear. Uh, ancestors to us here uh, express, right? Um, you know, so for me, I, I, I would have to say definitely the Ghanaian reality um, for me has always been one that I really enjoy, mainly because of so many practitioners, including like Weedy Brahma, they're born there, right? And mm-hmm. um, and, and it seems uh, that they, are, they have a different kind of open arm uh, relationship to uh, to people that have gone through the transatlantic experience returning, you know. Mm, right. I would say that those are probably the, my my two favorite places so far to hang out and to be around and to share, you know. But um, I I haven't had the good fortune of going to Senegal and Gambia, and uh, these are these places are next on my list. You know? Oh yeah, I'm I'm sure you'll be welcome with open arms when you go there. I hope so. For I'm sure. Park, so we'll see. <laughs> I imagine that as as a world traveling musician, you've got this big collection of of instruments in your home that you've collected from around the world. Where's uh Where's your your favorite place that you've picked up a, a really far out instrument recently? Uh probably the markets in Essaouira. Uh there's you know there's big festival out there, and what's great is you know it kind of combines multiple musical legacies into a space where you can see the synergies between seemingly disparate cultural groups and music. Mm. And, um, you know, musicians from all over the world bring their things. And sometimes we trade and, you know, sometimes you get there, you're like, how, how much you want for that? You know, <laughs> <laughs> we're not for sale, but, um, 
but but also the there are markets there that have really cool old musical instruments and like I bought a couple gimbri and like different choras and different things there but but I I have like haunts and shops all over the world that that I go to and and a lot of times because of the size and scale of some of the stuff I have to have it shipped so so I, yeah, I'm, I'm but... an online shopper <laughs> <with that. laughs> be be clicking buy now on gold, eBay uh, from, from, from online you know <laughs> You've developed your own instruments, actually. Um, the the Ajua horn is one which I read was uh, it's a hybrid of the fugal horn, the cornet, the trumpet. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, the Ajua trumpet is a hybrid of a flugel cornet. It were really all of the B flats, right? And uh, I wanted to try and build a composite um, that really read more like a flugelhorn in its sound. It's conical, so it's getting bigger from pretty much from where the receiver ends all the way into the bell. So it has a, a really nice, warm and buttery, beautiful sound. But traditionally, flugelhorns have a very small range. Mm. And so I wanted to try and create one that had a range similar to a trumpet um, that also had the ability to cut through like that. So we created one that has a receiver of a trumpet with these really deep shepherd's crooks uh, that helped kind of uh, shoot that air a little bit differently. And so it became a really, really cool composite of all of the instruments, you know. How did you go about creating that? What was your process for, for the technical part of it? We have a partnership with, uh, in my estimation, the, the greatest brass designer on the planet, it's a guy named Neil Adams. Hmm. Um, so I have my own line of trumpets with him. We have seven different models that we sell that people can purchase, but the uh, the Ajua horn was definitely the most fun to make. Uh, but we've been working together for, oh, let's see, it's, uh, wow, since uh, 2010, mm. something like that. So, um, you know, but but he's, um, I am, uh, you know, I'm, I'm drawing sketches and, you know, laying out exactly how many uh, centimeters I want this particular part of the horn to be or not, saying which materials and this sort of thing and figuring out how to create an integratable receiver and this sort of stuff. But when it comes to actually hammering the metal and putting it in the, you know, baking the horn for F, if you will, yeah. and kind of putting it on mandrels and things of that nature, uh, these are things that, uh, that Meal and his incredible team at Adams Brass are building. Wow, that's it's, it's, it. Sounds like you you've stepped also into this entre entrepreneurial space then with with developing the instruments. And I think you all uh, am I right? You've also uh, have app development as part of your your broad array. Yeah, we were actually the first ones in the world to create a stem player, uh, sort of a media player for records. You know, it's like a few years back, everyone was like, Kanye West figured it out. He created a stem player. <laughs> we're like, what? We, we did that 10 years ago. <laughs> you know, so I've always been really um, uh, connected to, to pushing both ends, you know, so it's like to be connected to the oldest things possible that we can get our hands mm -hmm. on while simultaneously looking for new means of expression. And so, uh, so yeah, the Stretch Music app has been, and the company has really been a, a joy to run and the, to, to grow in. We also have our own label and imprint uh, in partnership with Ropa Dope uh, Stretch Music as well. And, and we're starting to manufacture other instruments. Obviously the bow is on the record and that's one of the new ones, that prototype. And, uh, and uh, but now I'm working on creating new sort of expressions around some of the really old instruments that you see here and trying to create like MIDI adjacent things uh, to wow. them so that we can put them in, a, in an electronic and uh, 21st century kind of context as well. 
for instruments that are made out of wood or calabash and and so forth try and figure out how to how to uh, what kind of triggers or what type of materials we can couple them with so that we can read them and put them into you know so you can record it straight into logic <laughs> and uh, tools and these sort of things yeah same breath that you're so clearly well grounded in the tradition that you're coming from and 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 have such a, a a deep level of respect and honor for the people that came before you and 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 you know built the path for you that i see that you've you've got these clear eyes towards the future and so i'm curious for you you know what are the things that if you if you think about your earlier albums like like anthem what do you think you were you were trying to attempt then and accomplish then versus what you're you're looking forward to now moving the culture forward? Well, I think at, at that time and in that era of our uh, what we were contributing and building, I think it was also us still trying to develop mastery and what it was mm. that we're doing and to develop a, a true lived in experiential command. Um, you know, we were working on building sort of you know, we wanted to have like a comprehensively built approach to sort of ethnomusicological approach to limitless fusion. And that's hard. That's not easy, you know, because it means you that's have to, hard to say, let alone do. 
so hard, you know, because it means you have to you have to care at another level. I, I think a lot of people in this generation like to fuse music, but they usually don't know shit about the music they're fusing. I'm being honest, right? Yeah. It's like you know, you get guys who will be like, "Man, I really I wanna I wanna mix this sitar sound." If you ask them, you know, do you do you have a relationship to these instruments, or do you like the ragas, or do you do do you even know who Ravi Shankar is as an example? Right. Baseline right. stuff. And they don't have a relationship to it. So we wanted to make sure that if we were going to mix things that that at a minimum, someone in the group had lived in experiential moment in those cultures of music to be able to really contribute in the right way. And so, you know, records like Anthem and Rewind That were, you know, just early 20 somethings, uh, you know, who were who were playing in multiple different con- contexts and cutting their teeth, trying to figure out how to build the, the foundational parts of those composites. Whereas now we know exactly what the hell we're doing, you know, it's, it's, that's, it's almost two decades later of, of being in it, you know, four to seven hours a day, every day <laughs> for, for two decades. Right. So it's like, right. by the time we made Anthem, you know, maybe at the clip and the rate that most of those musicians could play, you know, they, we were already at a moment where we had probably put in between 15,000 and 20,000 hours of practice. That's how good the players were but now you can add another 20 to 25,000 hours if not more because it's you know 20 full years of really doing the thing versus like starting at 11 and making a record at 21 do you get what right. i'm saying so right. it's um it is a completely different level and clip now and like even the um yeah just everyone most of the people that are in the cohort have that like Weedy is certainly a master level practitioner. Elena is a master level practitioner. Lawrence is a master. Lucas is a master. Uh, we have new babies in the band now. Eli Howell is, uh, you know, we've been grooming him since he's six years old, but he just turned 25. He mm-hmm. just joined the band this year. So wow. um, he is developing, um, he is developing and, you know, if he continues to do what he's doing, he's going to be that as well. But but the point is, is like the band is sort of inundated with folks that are not guessing. They know exactly what the hell they're doing, you know, and, and what they're pulling from, you know. But it but it just comes it also just comes from 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 being around all of us also being around my uncle Donald, you know, mm-hmm. Donald is like the head of the spear. You know, he's the person that like trained multiple generations of New Orleanian, pretty much anyone that's like maybe four or five years older than I am and down, they all have had Donald as the guy that's like, this is what you're looking for. And um, his his piousness and sort of a relationship to like the sacredness of the expressions also make you, you have to take it much more, you know, like in other words, you have to carry the drum before you play it, you know, this mm. kind of thing. And, for sure. Uh, so, so, so it, it, it's, it's the, the relationship to how we build the music is a little bit different, but what was really fun about making this record was, is that I got to be a beginner again. Right. So it's like, I'm playing a new instrument that I'm like currently is in a prototype phasing that I had to build a new methodology for while making a record simultaneously. And it's like, like, yeah, I mean, I can play the hell out of the thing, but at the end of the day versus, uh, you know, uh, the master level practitioners that have been playing Cora since they were two or three, it's, you know, I don't have hands quite like that yet, you know? So, so that was fun for me to also take a step back and not be in the, uh, 
the known zone and to be in a space to where, you know, you're just trying to figure out how to express without it also being sort of a brow beaten with all of the sort of seriousness that revolves around the creative improvised component that exists in the older records, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When, when I, when I interviewed a uh, stick from dead Prez, he reminded yeah. me of the phrase, um, oh, you know, a black, a black belt is just a white belt that's gotten dirty over time. Right. So it sounds like you've got that white belt mentality with what you're doing as well. You you have to keep it whatever, even if you, you know, it's like, yeah, I know, but I, it's, I'm still knowing, learning, you know? Yeah. Because like, yeah. I can, like, yeah, I can play Louis Armstrong solo from Western Blues, but like, it's still me trying to approximate something that I don't have the same context for. I wasn't born in that environment in reality. I was born in the same general neighborhood, but almost mm. a century later, right, right, <laughs> so right, it's, right. A, it's different. So it's like, yeah, I can play those notes and I can give it as much fervor and all those energies that come out of that soil as possible. But right. it will never be the lived in experience of the man that had to endure that reality. Those are different mm. levels. Right. So, mm. so it, it's important to also be aware of where you fully sit in a thing and uh and to be willing to be the white belt, no matter how 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 black your belt is, no matter how stripes it is. You, yeah. You, always be approached from a white belt's perspective i think yeah yeah so when if you put yourself back in into your old your own you know five or six year old shoes or whatever when you were sitting at the feet of your uncle and and the other masters that you were training from do you remember uh one of the one one song that really like set your soul on fire as a as a really young trumpeter as a real young kid yeah and I wish I had been fortunate enough to start that early. I was the late guy from, you know, I started at 11. <laughs> in New Orleans, the kids, they would make fun of me. they say, you're too old. You'll never be able to play the trumpet. You're 12. You know, this, this kind of thing. <laughs> but I was so fortunate to have my Uncle Donald, you know, because, you know, he he's also one of those ones that really knows. But uh, the, the first lesson that I had from him, he's really frightened me. <laughs> He pulled out a pocket real book, which is like, you know, we used to have these little real books that kind of have the general tunes in them and everything. But okay. when it's big, everything is harder to read, you know? Yeah. Uh, but he pulled out a song that was falsely credited as Charlie Parker's composition, but it was actually Miles Davis that wrote it. That is sort of still a litmus test for most practitioners in this culture of music. It's called Donna Lee, right? Which is like lightning fast tempo you know, a million notes running, different kinds of pivots and parcels. The harmony is like really, really advanced harmony over so what we call Indiana changes. so many notes in it it looked like a roar shack <laughs> you couldn't break it apart and um and he played through it i mean it's my sense memory is getting goosebumps just remembering it he played through it and i it was the first time that he really played his horn into my chest like that i could feel the power of it and i immediately knew this was what i wanted to do because it was i was i was looking at the most powerful thing i had seen in my entire life you know my uncle's prowess is not a joke but uh you know but i've always had a really um a robust sense of humor so i immediately was like i can do that and grab my horn and just blowing trash back at him and he had a good sense of humor um but he sat me down he says listen I, i'm gonna give you 15 minutes and you gotta you need to be able to play that in 15 minutes and walked out of the room 
Honestly, he didn't expect me to be able to do yeah. that. I had yeah. just, I hadn't, I was barely learning to read at that point. But, and the song was written in E flat and the trumpet is a B flat. So I had to transpose the notes. And so, but I gave it my best try and I got through maybe the first couple bars, putting it in my key. And uh, uh, my sense memory remembers him rubbing my head and smiling to me. He has a dimple here and, and telling me that uh, this music was is really, really serious and that I have to be committed. My life has to be committed to it if mm-hmm. I want to do it, but that I was on my way because I didn't cry. I didn't say I can't do it. I didn't throw the book down that I, I tried. And that that was the larger point behind the music is a man being willing to get up and try. So, um, so, you know, I wouldn't be here without him. And, uh, he, he certainly is, um, the, uh, the, the, the most beautiful example that I've, I've had in my lifetime as it relates to this stuff. Recently, you you took on the title of chief, and are are now using your full title, Chief Zion Atunde Ajua, instead of Christian Scott. Yep. And I'm wondering if there, as you transitioned in in the way that you were given this title of chief, was there music that carried you through that transition as well? Were there certain certain musics that you were listening to at that time? I mean, you know, it's just the the general things. I think you know when when I found out that I would be chief, you know. I, similar to the Grand Griot moment. Recently, I became the Grand Griot of New Orleans. Hmm. Um, you know, it takes you to a moment where you're going back and you're just trying to relive as much as possible. So I did a lot of listening to my grandfather, a bunch of tapes of his, things my grandmother sent me of old practices and stuff with the when the nations would be meeting each other and different things. And, and also went back and listened to Indian blues and, you know, my Uncle Donald's pillar kind of album that sort of uh, this record is an extension of, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Indian Blues is a record that my uncle created that essentially showed the relationship to the sort of uh, skeleton keys of jazz being rooted in the the Maroon Nations and this kind of expression as well. Mm -hmm. So it it is sort of uh, like a a predecessor to what it is that we're trying to do in this music with stretch music and the 21st century music, but from the 90s jazz perspective, mashing into those things. So I, yeah. so I did a lot of listening to those those kinds of things. Uh, also listened to um, another great um, uh, singer in our culture, a guy named uh, Juan Pardo, who leads the Golden Comanche. He has a beautiful voice. voice. 
Um, you know, and but also going back and listening to to Bo Dallas and Monk Boudreaux and these kinds of, you know, uh, you know, old Neville Brothers records and these kinds of things uh, that come out of those uh, that come directly out of that experience. You know, yeah. what are you listening to today that is helping to inspire you as you push music forward and push the culture forward? Honestly, you know, it, the last couple of weeks have been sort of. Uh, you know, me kind of going into listening to, uh, there's a Ingoni Fola named Vu Kante. And mm -hmm. uh, this guy is like, um, you know, he's basically like uh, Jimi Hendrix before the Ingoni, <laughs> right? So this dude is like lightning licks, you know, but on these older instruments, he can really get down. I've been listening to a lot of his music, been listening to a lot of uh, Ishmael Rivera, uh, mm -hmm. the great Salsalero. Um, because there's a lot of synergy between those rhythms and how those the expressions are actually calibrated. And so uh, listening to that stuff and some Celia Cruz, uh, Celia Cruz, and, uh, you know, uh, just trying to find the synergies between those spaces and also trying to build like a more fully realized verse composite that also takes into consideration the uh, sort of, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, the kind of Afro-Caribbean version of the expressions rhythmically. Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, and then also I've been listening to Tom York's new band, The Smile. You know, yeah, okay. Tom's uh -huh. my I had the pleasure of playing in one of his groups, Adams for Peace, and uh, and uh, you know he is also one of those people that is at the foundation of how uh, how we learn to fuse music in this moment. And uh, so so uh, you know there's there's always a healthy diet of like Saul Williams and Tom York in my uh, playlist. Well, I love that you brought up Saul Williams because you. I also noticed that you've been in, uh, working a lot with different poets. Aja Monet is another one that you worked with recently. Tell yeah. me a little bit about about how working with uh, with those uh, poets has has uh, been a great collaboration and and what's that been like. Well, their you know their approaches are di very different from ours. You know, um, mm. you know because they're they're uh, they're like. Um, like I had the pleasure of, of producing music for them both and producing Aja's record uh, that was built with, a you know, as Weedy Ramen, Elena Lucas, you know, my group. And um, so being in that kind of context um, from a from a group dynamic perspective is always a lot of fun, you know, mm. um, but finding our way to meeting the poets where they live is we, we live in a space where it's really more family and the, the group dynamic first, whereas most poets are like, they're like lone wolves. So they usually kind of in their own space doing, you know, kind of blazing those trails alone. So um, musically, sometimes it takes a moment to try and find each other because the mode of operating is so different. Right. And so, you know, it's always a great learning experience with, um, uh, with 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 building those kinds of things but for me like saul williams is like he's the fucking goat man like you can't you know it's it's not he, he, there are no ceilings like that dude had to skydive to get to like the next person's level <laughs> you know, he just, he's i love that visual he's great you know truly yeah. great yeah. and um and so you know I my music is none of my music from the first record till now is not the way that it is without Saul Williams. Mm. He's the guy that like created us to a very specific type of courage for our generation of not just musicians, but just people. <laughs> right. So yeah. it's like um, 
so that that kind of courage building thing is something that we always want to have as a part of our music as well. But it comes from his great example. You know? I love that. That's such that's such an amazing thing to be able to to see. That. And obviously, you know, these are these are communities that intertwine so closely, right? Like you see, I think about. You know, that's the thing is like, they're not that I have, you know, it's like the 50th anniversary of hip hop is this year. And I do a lot of interviews about that. Yeah. And people always ask me like, you know, like, what do you think about like jazz and hip hop? And I'm just like, it's the same. <laughs> it is it's just the way, the way of the way that we are going about it may yeah. have nuanced differences. But right. in terms of the realities of the people that are speaking and the stories they're telling is the same people and the same things. So right. I don't I never suffered from that sort of tendency to like carve up things by definition, like we talked about before. Like to me, when I hear what Saul Williams is doing, like I like obviously most people won't be able to divorce that from James Baldwin. But like if you're divorcing it from Abby Lincoln, you're not paying enough attention. For sure. <laughs> right? For so sure. those traditions are connected. I don't see them as different. Protest my hard drive. Sky is my witness. There's no such thing as small spirits. Ancestral minorities take breath through nature's hidden forces. We breathe through horses, we breathe through tortoise, cancerous causes, ongoing wars. Is. We are everywhere. Up from the water, I was drowned. The bullet exits the body, the organs seal themselves. Planes appear out of fire. The people are praying right there where we left them. Ancestral recall. Ancestral recall. We breathe through instruments, one light wave infinite. We breathe through dissidence, we breathe through difference. Ancestral recall. The title of this series that we're doing is, is called Soul Ladder Music. And that comes from a line from the writings of the Baha'i Faith that okay. say that God has made music as a ladder for our souls. I'm curious for you, if you hear this idea of, of God making music as a ladder for our souls, what is, what is that, how does that interact with, with, with some of the concepts and things that you've been coming up with? It sense to me, you know, I mean, it's, that's, that's um, how I feel in so many moments, right? Because the, again, like we talked about the expanding versus contracting energy and mm. into a space where you're contributing something that hopefully uh, expands and elevates and lifts, um, you know, all, all of those things are from source, right? I, um, I'm a person that um, doesn't, um, obviously my name was Christian for many years. So it's like, uh, I have a relationship to the Abrahamic religions. Yeah. Uh, but to me, you know, what I've always really uh, appreciated about the Baha'i faith and the way that it's calibrated is it's, it's inclusiveness. 
right? That is, I think, very different from the, the way that we would traditionally lay out how most Abrahamic faiths actually interact with each other. Mm. And, um, you know, so so I, I didn't, I, I had never heard that before, uh, but I, I really love it because it, it, to me, it feels like exactly what's going on, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. So, so as you're as you're going forward, as you're as you're looking to to sort of next steps for the ways that you're expanding, what what are some of the things that that you're seeking to do to help? You know, as you were talking about at the beginning, make this you know a deeply soul experience for the people that are interacting with your music. What are what are some of the ways that you're you're putting that out in the world? Well, I think the first thing is, you know, to to create spaces that uh, you're very clear about the fact that people are actually welcome in and that they're mm-hmm. safe. Um, so also, there, I don't think there's anything wrong with being overt and telling people this is what the purpose of part of this is. Try, yeah. try and tap into that frequency, right? Yeah. It's the same as if you're having a guided meditation. So, you know, sometimes I get a bunch of flack for speaking so much at my concerts, but... The point for me is to make sure that people leave transformed, not for them to leave in the same energy that they, they've been in, you know? And um, so so I, so I think that we're really intentional about trying to make sure that we're playing in spaces that offer that kind, those kinds of energies. Mm-hmm. And then also re- being really intentional in the next few years about making sure that we play as much as possible for children. Because ultimately, oh, they, they're the ones that are going to um, to carry this stuff forward and like, if we're just dealing with like the very adult kind of situation, then there's a lost opportunity to also impart to younger people that have the ability to be able to take these expressions forward. You know, mm-hmm. I, I love that. That's a, again, coming back to this idea of, of being a setting a beautiful example for the people around you. I, I think that's such a wonderful focus to have that on. It sounds like you're continuing to 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 really embody all the aspects of what that that chief title has. I love mm-hmm. that. I appreciate thank you for all, all your great work. No, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Chief, this is so great. Thank you so much for taking the time. And oh, yeah. uh, I look forward to seeing you at the Kennedy Center. All right. I will see you Friday night at 7 p.m. All <laughs> right. Thanks for making the climb with me this week on Soul Ladder Music. An immense gratitude to Chief Adjua, not only for the interview, but also for the invitation for my family to join him at his show last week at the Kennedy Center. It was an amazing show, so thank you to the whole band and your team. You can learn more about Chief Adjua's music at Chief Adjua, that's A-D-J-U-A-H, chiefadjua.com. All of this link as well as links to all the music played during the episode in our show notes. Look for all the episodes of the Soul Ladder Music series on all podcast platforms and check out the Soul Ladder Music playlist on Spotify for music from all of our shows. Thanks as always to Jeff Philosopher for providing our theme music and a special best of luck to my former associate producer, Aiden Keyes, who's starting our PhD program. It's been a great year working with you on the show and I'm wishing you lots of great music as you start your new chapter. Keep tuning in to WOWD 94.3 FM, Tacoma Radio for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org.